1: We're at the highs of the day right now stocks posting a bit of a relief rally as the nasdaq breaks its longest losing streak in almost six years the most important hour of trading starts now welcome everyone to closing bell i'm sarah eisen take a look at where we stand right now in the market the dow is higher by about 150 points about 466 points higher. The S&P 500 up 1.8%. Every sector is positive right now, except for looks like energy. The leaders, it's it's kind of defensive. You've got utilities at the top, but consumer discretionary and materials are right down there behind it. So it, it's broadening out this rally throughout the day. 29 out of 30 Dow stocks higher. Only Chevron is in the red. Home Depot is the biggest contributor to the gains. There's the sector heat map. As you can see, Lots of green on the screen, 2% gains plus for all of those groups, financials, communication services, materials, discretionary, and utilities. Coming up this hour, we will discuss the strength of the consumer, inflation, supply chain issues. We've got an exclusive interview with the CEO of Kellogg. Apple, though, first up, announcing several new products just this afternoon, including the highly anticipated iPhone 14. Our Steve Kovac in Cupertino, California, with all the highlights. Steve, what do we need to know?
2: Hey there, Sarah. Yeah, let's start off with that iPhone 14. So we have two regular models announced. That's the iPhone 14, iPhone 14 Plus. They got rid of the iPhone 14 mini, so no more small version of the iPhone. Those are gonna go on sale starting next week. And then the iPhone 14 uh, Pro line. Now this one looks a little different, new design for the first time in a few years for the iPhone. It has, instead of, they kind of squished those facial recognition centers into a pill-like cutout on the front of the screen, and they're calling that the Dynamic Island, which is kind of a goofy name, but basically it will show different status indicators for for things like battery life and when you connect your AirPods. And speaking of AirPods, new AirPods Pro, those are the noise canceling version. Uh, better noise canceling this time, better battery life, all those kind of things. And then uh, we have the new Apple Watch. This is something they spent probably more time on than the iPhone in in some respects. The, uh, The Apple Watch Ultra, this is a $800 Rugged version of the Apple Watch. It's designed for people who like extreme sports like mountain climbing, diving, hiking, and in, in extreme conditions. It's extremely durable, has a big, bright screen and longer battery life and better GPS, which is really important for runners. Uh, what's really interesting is a lot of folks were expecting an increase on the price for iPhones. That didn't happen. The iPhone uh, pricing is steady. So it's going to be interesting to see, Sarah, how that plays into margins when they report earnings uh, in just a month or so.
1: That's what I was going to ask you about, Steve, because I thought it was surprising that they didn't raise the price specifically of the iPhone Pro, right? The high end. Isn't that what what Wall Street was expecting in order to deal with some of the inflationary costs?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's going to be interesting to hear how they can make up uh, any kind of price increase with these uh, problems they're having in the supply chain. But also keep in mind, Sarah, those supply chain issues and inflation issues are hitting other lines more than they're hitting the iPhone line. So uh, Macs have been suffering from that and iPad, but the most profitable product and which accounts for uh, half of the sales or more is the iPhone. And so it sounds like they're able to protect those margins pretty well
1: stock is up, which actually it doesn't often do on these big launch days. Steve Kovac, thank you very much. For more on Apple, let's bring in our panel for what to do on this with the stock. Dan Ives from Wedbush Securities and senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli. Dan, you're, you're, you're super bullish on Apple. Anything surprise you today?
3: Look, okay, I think it was really the new price increase. I mean, I think that just shows the power of the E16 chip. They have a lot of significant pricing power, and I think that really showed and then if you look, I mean, the models across the board, the fact they had this launch on time, especially given the supply chain issues that we've seen in China, I viewed it as almost a superhero like view of Cupertino to get through this. Street's going to like the no price increase.
1: What what do you make of the stock? It's already outperformed. It's only down 13 percent so far this year. Is this a catalyst at all?
3: Oh, I view this as a catalyst combined with what we believe is just an underestimated demand cycle. I mean, I think 240 million of a billion iPhones are in a window of an upgrade opportunity. You got 30% of those coming out of China that are in a window of an upgrade with no price increase. It just shows the power of the E16 chip to maintain margins. I believe street numbers continue to move up despite the macro. I view it as a positive catalyst and I think it just shows internally that they continue to have more control over that ecosystem
1: what do you think Mike
4: I mean Apple does what it does, which is the products get better all the time. They give uh, kind of users more than they necessarily were asking for. But I do think that they've already won the benefit of the doubt in terms of being able to kind of smooth out this upgrade cycle over years and just having this huge install base. That's why the stock has already kind of done its job, in my opinion, in terms of holding up better than almost anything else in the Nasdaq, um, trading at a 40% premium to the market uh, based on expected earnings. So I don't know if what happened today is going to get the numbers going up for fiscal 2023, which we're basically uh, you know, in right now or just about in. Um, it's supposed to be 6% earnings growth. It's a huge, huge aircraft carrier of a company. It doesn't take a lot to move it. But that's because it's already so profitable that tacking on more is is, is tough. So I feel like it's, it's as steady as she goes. It's consistent with the Apple story. I don't know that it's necessarily a real inflection point.
1: Why, why do you disagree, Dan, with what Mike said, that it's already in the stock?
3: Well, I think I know look, Mike raised great points. I just think it's really about the install base. I mean, when we do our checks coming out of each even this week, it basically shows ninety million units coming out of the gate. That's flat with iPhone thirteen, no cuts. And I think as we go through I in the streets, not just underestimating the product cycle, but I think it's ASP. The ASPs continue to shift much higher. I think streets modeling, I think that's going to be the big wow factor as you go into the next four to six quarters. And I still think sentiment right now is very negative on Apple and overall just big tech. And I think this is just the start of what I believe is going to be a carpet ride into this major upgrade cycle.
4: Yeah, I mean, I don't know, Dan, if sentiment is that negative in terms of, you know, 80 percent buy ratings on the street. People are basically feeling as if, you know, it is a core holding. It's 7.3 percent of the s and I'm sure very few investors are overweighted because it's so big in the index. But to me, it seems like people are pretty respectful of the story now.
3: No, I look, I think respectful of the story. But I think with valuation, in my opinion, when you look at the services and the sum of the parts, I think that's really the key. I still believe services is worth $1.2 to $1.4 That's not softening. And I think that dynamic is something right now from a buy side perspective, from a whisper. Industry does not believe there's upsides that call 220 million iPhones. You look at what we saw today with the launch and even on AirPods. I still think we look out the next four to six quarters. I think Cook and Cupertino yet again, despite the macro, surprising the upside
1: what about china dan what what's happening there because h- how important is it for for apple right now in terms of profit revenue and growth these rolling shutdowns aren't they having an impact
3: No, you know that look it's the hearts and lungs of the apple story not just from a demand perspective but for supply i think when you think about april and may being shut down because of zero COVID, the fact that they had this launch today is really unfathomable relative to where we we look back a few months ago i think the irony is They've gained about 300 bips of market share in the China market. And I think that's really going to be a growth catalyst despite geopolitical and everything we're seeing. Then you combine that with supply. I think the worst of the supply issues in the rearview mirror and today was Cook and Cupertino flexing their muscles, coming out with all these new products despite the unprecedented supply chain issues.
1: Dan Ives, big fan of Apple. Thank you very much. Mike Santoli, we'll see you later. Up next, we will discuss the outlook for the IPO market and tech sector with venture capitalist Michael McNano. Find out which types of companies he's targeting straight ahead. The Dow of 465 again at the highs of the day. Pretty broad rally with every sector positive in the S&P except for energy. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC.
5: What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close?
7: At least that's good. The UPS store, be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
1: Venture capital firm, Lightspeed, is making a big bet in New York City. It's opening a new office here in part because of growing sectors like FinTech and crypto. The company also announcing a new partner today for their consumer team. And that partner, Michael McNano, joins us now. Michael, it's great to have you. For those that, that don't know your founder as well, you started Anchor, sold it to Spotify, ran, ran their talk business, obviously a leader in podcasts. Why, why are you doing venture now and why in New York City?
8: Yeah, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. You know, like you said, it's a big day for technology startups and the New York City tech ecosystem. We announced that I'm joining Lightspeed today. We announced that we're opening up a new office here in New York City. And yeah, we think New York City is an amazing place uh, to have an office. We view it as the hub to the rest of the world. When founders from all over the world come to the U.S., they often stop in New York. And having started a company here myself, Anchor, I can tell you that it's a really great community and great ecosystem. So I'm really excited for this next chapter of my career and to uh, invest in lots of amazing companies with Lightspeed.
1: Are people actually going to be working in the office?
8: You know there's really no replacement for working live face to face in the office but for even the companies that are working distributed and working remotely there's still tons of activity and tons of meetings that are taking place right here in new york city so absolutely Uh, as you mentioned i recently ran the talk business at spotify after building and founding anchor the world's biggest podcasting platform and i can tell you even recently when i was still at spotify there were many of us in the office and uh, like i said you really can't replace that in-person connection.
1: So Lightspeed is known for a lot of the investments, we're putting them, putting them up on the screen as well, early investor in Snap, I would add. What, what are you eyeing in the New York area when it comes to categories and, and areas for growth? Because we are at this sort of interesting period where a lot of technology in the startup scene is hurting right now and valuations have come down.
8: So I'll be focused mostly on the consumer sector uh, when I'm working with Lightspeed, but it's really a collaborative firm. It's a global firm and we all work collaboratively cross sector, cross geo. You know, technology really never rests despite whatever the market is doing technology companies are always being built and they're always being pushed forward. And I think Lightspeed is in a fantastic position to be the top venture capital fund of the future. It's a truly global firm. We've been global for more than 15 years. We have deep domain expertise across a number of different sectors. Uh, We're a true partnership, a big flat organization, not just a handful of individuals. And we have full stack support. We recently raised $7 billion in capital to invest across all stages, which you know, whatever the market conditions may be, uh, having $7 billion uh, to deploy is gonna be really, really helpful over the next few years.
1: But what are you finding in terms of the startup ecosystem and how it's been impacted by the volatility in the, in the public market, of course, especially in the tech sector?
8: Yeah. I mean, like I said, so I've actually been angel investing for the past couple of years and even up until I accepted this job, you know, I I was doing a number of really exciting deals. I've done about 50 over the past couple of years. And like I said, technology companies won't stop being built. Right. Technology is sort of how we as a collective humanity innovate and push ourselves forward. Um, So we're seeing lots of exciting companies across consumer enterprise fintech uh, health growth. Um, There's a lot of really exciting things going on in the media and consumer sector, um, especially given some of the uh, recent announcements from some of the big platforms towards recommendation media, more algorithmic content discovery. Uh, So it's really a great time to be building a company and I'm excited to get to work.
1: What about in your area of expertise and podcasts and, and audio business and media opportunity there?
8: Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the, the internet has taught us that any form of media, any form of content, always over time becomes democratized. It becomes easier and easier to create. It's what inspired me to want to build Anchor. And now we're seeing that the friction is reducing even lower and people are able to make even more content. You know, one trend in particular we're seeing a lot of is podcasts, a medium that was all about audio up until recently is starting to be more and more about video. All of the biggest platforms in the world are starting to add Mm. video to their podcast offerings. And I think that's only gonna get easier and easier for creators to make, and therefore there will be more and more companies catering to consumers in this sector.
1: Yeah, and also makes you wonder, Mike, what's gonna happen to the social media companies? Because it seems like, well, Facebook and Twitter, or Facebook and TikTok have transitioned into what you're talking about, these video companies.
8: Absolutely. You know, TikTok really popularized this new means of content discovery, which I call recommendation media, where content is distributed based purely on platform recommendations and less so on social networks or who your friends are. So you know the, the platforms that will really be strong in the future will be the ones that invest in the best machine learning technology because that's what enables them to power these algorithms.
1: Michael, thank you for joining us on your first day with the announcement. We appreciate it, Michael Mingano of Lightspeed. Thanks,
8: Sarah. Take care. Let's
1: show you what's happening. You too with the markets right now. About a 460-plus point gain. What's driving it today? Well, you're getting a little bit of a breather in the Treasury market. That's certainly helping. Yields are lowered for the first time in a while. They've been shooting straight up basically since Jackson Hole. That's put pressure on tech. Well, today it's rebounding with lower yields. The Nasdaq's up two and a quarter percent. Up next. A look at what elevated stress in the financial system could impact, how elevated stress could impact the market and the economy. And then as we had to break, check out some of today's top search tickers on CNBC.com. Tenure yield takes the top spot as well. Uh, as you can see, there's buying today for a change, as I just mentioned. Yield goes below with 330. Crude oil gives back five and a half percent, a big decline, continuing its decline lately, 82 bucks a barrel. That's why energy stocks are underperforming. Tesla, Apple, and the S&P 500, all strong today, rounding out the top five. We'll be right back.
8: At the UPS store, we
6: know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need.
7: Is there anything you can't do?
6: Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS. nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything.
7: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
1: Time now for today's Market Dashboard. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli with a health check from the global financial system. So glad you're doing this, Mike.
4: Yeah, sir, a lot of attention on sort of the blood pressure level of the markets coming into this week, especially with the dollar racing higher, bond yields as well, dislocations in European power markets, oil uh, having an accelerated decline. Well, here's a measure of overall financial stress. This is the OFR, Office of Financial Research, uh, Financial Stress Index. Goes back to the beginning of the year 2000. And you see it has become a bit elevated right here. Nothing compared to the COVID crash. That was that prior spike. This is 2016 or so. So you definitely see things like credit conditions, volatility, uh, nothing really going on in bank funding markets. That's another thing that, that's measured here. in equity valuations, they're just sort of lifting a little bit. This is the post-2000 bear market and recession. These shaded areas are recession. So I would say you have to be on alert, but nothing really is telling you that there's about to be some kind of a financial accident. And some strategists are pointing out, look, Fed usually tries to push things until something cries uncle in the financial markets. That hasn't really happened yet, except for valuation suffering.
1: Are currencies in there?
4: No, they are. Uh, yeah I believe that they're they 're getting, they're getting
1: per, kind of extreme
4: they are, and I think that 's part of the idea as to why people are, are tensing up for something like this is when you see the, the dollar racing higher this way against the you know, Chinese and, and Japanese currencies, you do tend to think that somebody 's upside down also uh, a lot of sp- leverage money in the oil markets and, and, and the power markets specifically, and there 's some worry that somebody has margin calls out there, but you know, today you're seeing a little bit of relaxation in the markets as those things uh, ease up a little. Yeah,
1: credit market's been remarkably calm.
4: It's been resilient, yeah.
1: yeah. Mike, thank you. We'll see it for Market Zone. Up next, though, the CEO of Kellogg on the outlook for inflation. Why he says the supply chain still not back to normal. We'll be right back. The consumer has proven very, very resilient. That's what the Kellogg CEO said he's seeing across his company as consumers deal with high inflation, and the stock is proving to be resilient as well, the company outperforming a number of other consumer staple stocks. Take a look, up more than thirteen percent so far this year. Joining us for an exclusive interview is the Bar- from the Barclays Consumer Staples Conference, Kellogg CEO Steve Cahillane. Steve, welcome back. Nice to see you.
6: Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again.
1: So, Doug, tell us a little bit more about what you are seeing right now from the consumer who. who is dealing with a price shock across a number of of fronts.
6: Yeah, so I I don't wanna overstate it when I say that the consumer is resilient because clearly the consumer is under a lot of pressure in the United States and indeed around the world. But what we have seen is that despite the inflationary pressures, despite the ongoing challenges with COVID, that especially in our business and in other businesses, the consumer has proven resilient. I think there's still some benefits from obviously the incredible fiscal stimulus that was put in place. The employment prospects remain very, very strong. If you want a job, you can find a job. And so in the U.S., consumer remains strong. In emerging markets, the consumer uh, even before the pandemic for our business has proven incredibly resilient starting with oil shocks through the pandemic and through the inflation that we're seeing. So. Uh, quite surprisingly, I would say, hmm. the consumer continues to show great resilience.
1: So does that mean that you're not seeing a whole lot of evidence of trade downs, which we've been hearing about in, in different parts of retail and consumer sectors where they're going down in categories or to private label?
6: We are not seeing that. Now, we don't take it for granted, but you know, we continue to invest in our brands uh... we have to earn the right to be in our consumers kitchens and on the breakfast tables and in their pantries each and every day and so we've continued to invest with value-added programs with our customers to make sure that we mind the price gap that we earn the right uh... again to be part of their shopping list each and every day so we have not seen that trade down uh... but we think we've earned the right not to be traded down
1: well what what's happening on pricing Steve? How, how much have you taken and are you continuing to raise prices
6: yes so you know we say each and every day that You know, the first line of defense against high prices and input cost inflations for us is productivity. But when you're seeing high teens inflation and inputs, no level of productivity savings is going to match that. So, you know, we want to protect our margins for the long term health of our business. So we've had to take pricing to cover a gap between three to four percent up to 19 percent. So, you know, you're talking about you know mid-teens inflation and mid-teens cost increases that have had to happen as we look into the future and next year we see the same challenging um situation exist you know we're going through our plans right now so we have nothing to announce but you know we don't see a mitigation of inflation happening unfortunately
1: i heard the same message yesterday from alan jope the ceo of of unilever who said we're still raising prices we're still seeing the the high costs and of course then people wonder the pushback is are, are you just raising, using it as an excuse to raise prices for consumers and by you i mean the industry and all, all of these companies right now because you're not seeing a whole lot of pushback when in fact some of these costs are starting to come down you can just look at the commodity prices
6: yes yeah, Sarah, you know they're starting to come down off historic highs year over year the cost inflation is still real and it's pervasive and I'd say, as an industry, you know, I haven't seen that. You know, we we want to maintain our affordability, and the the retailers out there, the customer base is doing their job exceptionally well. They are not, uh, you know, they are not happily taking price increases. They're challenging everything as they should, and you know, we want to maintain our affordability. So we're not looking at this as an opportunity to take undue price increases. And when you look at our margins, and you know, obviously we talked about our second quarter results, you know, our margins are still under pressure. We're doing a good job covering input cost inflation, but we're not necessarily covering the uh you know the disruptive costs, the bottlenecks and the shortages and the unforecastable, unforeseeable increases. You know, we're having to eat that. And so I think all in the industry are looking at affordability and making sure that we're keeping the consumer at the heart and soul of everything we do. At Kellogg, we certainly are.
1: Last time we spoke, Steve, it was on the day that you announced the the big plan for breaking the company into three different companies. And I know you've been working on that. Are are you on target? I know you've appointed, named a CEO of the new cereal company. how's, How's it all going?
6: It's going very well. We are, we are definitely on track uh, for the end of next year to spin off uh, the ser- North American cereal business and the plant-based Morningstar Farms business. And yes, we announced uh, Gary Pilnick, a 22-year veteran for Kellogg as the new CEO of the business. That was very, very well received inside the company and really gave a, lo- a lot of energy to the folks in the cereal business. We announced uh, about half of his leadership team, six individuals with over 100 years of collective experience, uh, very, very widely respected veterans like Doug Velde Bruce Brown, Sherry Williamson as part of that team running the commercial operations and the supply chain. Very well respected veterans of Kellogg and uh, and definitely uh, shows that we're on track. And in fact, ahead of track because we'd said we would announced that management team at the latest in the first quarter of next year. And so to get it out this early, I think was a very positive sign.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll expect more news on that, I guess, into next year. What, what is happening on, you mentioned the supply chain, what's happening there? Still seeing problems?
6: Still challenges, Sarah, each and every day. And so Uh, The manual and human intervention that has to happen in what were otherwise automated processes continues. In the month of July, in fact, the the level of escalations that we had that go all the way to the top of the house was uh, at a record high. And so it's a little bit like the old whack-a-mole game, you know, something gets better and then something else is a little disrupted. And so we're managing through it, uh, but we're not where we want to be in terms of uh, the level of um, uh, service levels to our customers we 're working hard to get there, but there is just uh, a dislocation that has happened that continues to happen it 's not just us it's it 's everybody you hear it at this conference i 'm at yeah. everybody 's working hard to get to a better place but it's it continues to be a real challenge
1: and then and then there 's the retail inventory issue i 'm watching shares of Newell brands today, which are sharply lower the company. Cut guidance this quarter for the full year, and they didn't really talk about weakening demand. They talked about retailers pulling back on orders as, as a primary reason. I'm wondering what you're seeing on that front, if that's an industry-wide issue or something more specific to their categories, which, which isn't necessarily food, it's other kind of staples and discretionary items.
6: Yeah, we're not seeing it. You know, we've worked very, very hard to get our inventory levels back to an acceptable level and build our retailers' inventories to an acceptable level so that we have full shelves and good promotional activity for consumers. And so we're at that level, you know, we're always happy to operate at a lower inventory level um, if we can. But right now we're at at acceptable levels for us, for our retailers, and don't really see any changes to that. And have not engaged in any conversations with our retail partners around lowering inventory levels. Right now we've got safety stocks where we need to be so we can satisfy uh, the consumer demand that we have.
1: Well, like I said, the stock the stock has been an outperformer lately. Steve, appreciate you taking the time from the Barclays Back to School Conference. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Steve Cahillane, CEO of Kellogg. Take a look at where we stand right now in the markets. A strong day. It's broad. We're breaking the losing streak for the Nasdaq. They were it was down seven days in a row. It's up two and a quarter percent right now. We're gonna discuss whether It's a dead cat bounce or something more meaningful. Also, Netflix shares rallying after a big upgrade today. The analyst behind that call explains why he is bullish on Netflix's upcoming ad tier. And a reminder, you can listen to Closing Bell on the go. Just follow the Closing Bell podcast on your favorite podcast app. Dow's up 469. We'll be right back. Airline stocks are soaring following a guidance hike by a major carrier. We'll share the details straight ahead. Plus a Netflix bear changes his tune. All coming up for you in the market zone. Broad based rally with the Dow more than 450. We are now in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Macquarie's Tim Nolan on Netflix and Philebeau on the airlines. We'll kick it off with the broader market. The Dow is having a strong day. So is the rest of the market. The S&P 500 up almost 2 percent. The Nasdaq up more than 2 percent, Mike. You wonder if it just got oversold coming in today, whether whether we should read anything into a rally like this. Well, we
4: definitely were uh, oversold on a short-term basis. Mentioned that yesterday. The key question is whether the market is going to respond to those conditions. And we have, maybe one day later than a lot of folks were expecting. S&P 500 has sort of spent a lot of time chopping around the 3,900 level. Uh, It was seen as a a sort of a significant area to hold. And we did. I think the other thing that happened today is, uh, you know, Treasury yields eased back. They were up a lot yesterday in part on huge corporate debt issuance. The dollar calmed down a little bit. And we stress tested the stock market for some more somewhat hawkish sounding Fed news. Uh, Wall Street Journal saying it'll be three quarters of a point likely in September when the Fed meets. And then uh, Lael Brainerd coming out again and essentially reiterating uh, their stance that they're not done with the inflation fighting campaign. Uh, but it seemed balanced enough. It seemed like not so much new news. When, when Powell delivered that message, it, you know, late August, Jackson Hole, the S&P was at 4,200 here at 3,900 it was net bullish or at least not scary.
1: Right. The, the hawkish commentary from the Fed members today, including the vice chair, Lael Brainard, saying we're going to have to be there for a while. The fact that the, the market didn't react to that shows that a lot of that is in. Same with the three quarters of a percentage point hike. That, yeah. that was already it didn't come as a huge surprise. I do think the question, Mike, is whether the bond market has it right that the Fed is going to stop hiking in March 2023.
4: Right. And that is the big question. I think the key is that nothing that the Fed officials are saying right now is inconsistent with that idea that there'll be a pause within the next several months. Uh, It seems as if they really would love 2022 to be the year where they got rates to where they think they have to be, as opposed to letting it bleed into next year. I think Jim Bullard of St. Louis Fed more or less said that. Uh, So I do think that there is sort of the market taking in the hawkish speak, saying they can't rest and they can't wait, uh, you know, they can't necessarily become complacent, wanting to see more help on inflation in a few months worth of data. But it still could mean that by March, they're mostly where they have to be on rates.
1: Let's hit Twitter shares are on a tear today after a Delaware court slapped down Elon Musk's request to delay a trial, which could determine whether he needs to move forward with his forty four billion dollar purchase of Twitter. Look at the stock. It's up six point four percent. Still a long, a long way from fifty four twenty. The deal price. Julia Borston. Has more. So this one didn't go his way, Julia. It did not go his way. I mean, there was a little bit
7: of, of this ruling that did work in his favor, and that was that the judge said that Musk's team will be allowed to take some of the information from the whistleblower, Peter Zatko, and incorporate that into their case. Because, of course, the allegations from the whistleblower do change the argument a little bit. But the fact that the judge decided not to change the day of, date of the trial, it's still set. For the week of October uh, 17th, it's going to be a five-day trail. The fact that she didn't budge on that indicates that she doesn't think the whistleblower's allegations are a game-changer. So we're seeing the stock move higher because there's this sense that, based on what the judge said today, that she is going to be holding a pretty hard line in terms of making sure that Musk goes forward with the terms of the agreement and really sticking to his original argument um, when he when he refused to buy the company, go through the you know the sale of the company. So very interesting right. here to see her comments, and we're seeing some analysts weigh in here, saying this that the fact that she's holding a hard line on the date of the trial reflects the magnitude of the damage that the Musk circus has already done and continue to do. That's a quote from CFRa. So interesting to watch uh, those shares up six and a half percent today.
1: Yeah, well now we wait for the trial. I guess what do you have any sense really of what is happening inside Twitter? I know you, you interviewed SNAPS today, Snap CEO, Evan Spiegel. They're, they're trying to move forward and get through the macroeconomic headwinds, Meta's focusing on video. Like, How is this company running day-to-day with this kind of distraction and, and cloud hanging over it? Well, look,
7: there's no doubt this is a massive distraction. Any company that would have to reckon with this, you know, the fact that there's a lawsuit never mind the fact that all of their employees are probably watching the headlines and waiting for Elon Musk to tweet in any second. There is a massive distraction. I did talk to some sources there who said they were surprised that the judge didn't split the difference. There was some anticipation that maybe she would say, hey, we won't grant a four-week delay, which is what Musk was looking for. Maybe she would delay by a week or two. The fact that she didn't delay at all, I, I bet some people there are breathing a big
1: sigh of relief today. Julia Borston. Julia, thank you. Starbucks shares getting a jolt Ahead of the coffee chain's Investor Day next Tuesday, outgoing CEO Howard Schultz voicing his support for incoming CEO Lakshman Narasimhan on CNBC earlier today. He's set to join in October. The Starbucks customer also proving remarkably resilient in the face of inflation, according to Mr. Schultz. Listen.
6: The price of Starbucks coffee is not something that customers are, they want to give up. And so the demand for Starbucks, despite the fact that we had to raise prices about 5% over the past year because of inflation, our business is quite strong and it's still an affordable luxury.
1: Mike, my question to you is where is the street on Starbucks? Because the business is strong. Schultz, Schultz has come back. The market is excited about that. They're excited about the new CEO. But the reason Schultz came in to begin with is because they had a real problem on their hands coming out of COVID with employees and and getting back to the kind of growth they were seeing pre-COVID?
4: Yeah, I think the street is a little bit mixed on the story. Basically, respectful of the fact that it's a a core brand, uh, one of the great kind of American consumer brands and steadier in its financial performance uh, than almost anything else in consumer discretionary for the most part, except for McDonald's maybe. But it seems as if it's at an awkward stage in its global growth build out and just having a lot of operational issues to worry about. I don't I I would actually tend to agree uh, with Howard Schultz on the idea that one of the things that is not a big concern is acute price sensitivity of the customer base. I can remember in the 90s when it was one of the great growth stocks of the decade. And the bear case on Starbucks was always who is ever going to pay two dollars for a cup of coffee. And so it seems like they've not reached that limit uh, to where we're talking about, as he says, still relatively affordable indulgences.
1: Yes, even more so when it when it's pumpkin spice season and you yeah. have your pumpkin spice latte. What about China? It's very heavily exposed to yes. China. Are any of these st- consumer stocks? I asked about Apple before, Dan Ives, about that one, Nike, Are any of them really feeling the impact from what's been happening in China, which are millions of people being locked down?
4: I absolutely think they're feeling the impact on, you know, the, the growth side, on the sales side. What they're not seeing, I think, is that confusion about whether... Uh, you know, the, the authorities in China are hostile to the brand or they don't really want to replace it with their own domestic providers. That's the case with some tech and some manufacturing businesses. Not really the case when it comes to, you know, the Western consumer brand. So I think that you have to worry about it cyclically, but not over the very, very long term, because it's still in a pretty aggressive growth mode, or at least was until, you know, the last couple of years in, in China.
1: Well, unless the geopolitics get, get worse, that could be a yeah. problem between the U.S. and China. Look at Netflix shares rising in today's session. A new report from The Wall Street Journal saying the company is taking a wide range of steps to cut costs in the face of what it's been seeing, slowing subscriber growth, including hiring more junior staff, better controlling cloud computing costs and also limiting its real estate footprint and corporate swag. Joining us for more on the stock is Macquarie Capital senior media analyst Tim Nolan, who just upgraded Netflix to neutral from underperform, Tim, have a $230 price target on the stock, which is basically where we are right now. So it's not exactly a bullish call. What's your feeling on Netflix?
0: Right. Well, we
5: were bearish on Netflix um, because we just saw these streaming wars taking off and so much competition from Disney Plus and so many other players and just, just you know, pressure on consumers' time to spend with streaming and the amount they're willing to spend on all these different services. when Netflix came out with the discussion of launching an ad-supported tier, that began to pique our interest again. And so what we've done today is produced a report that really digs into how the math works behind this. And uh, we estimate that it could be not only a strong um, ad revenue business for Netflix if they roll it out smoothly, but in terms of incremental revenue to the company and earnings, of course, factoring in, you'll have some migration of paid subs to this lower uh, price tier um, still leads to some good incremental revenue and earnings performance for Netflix over a few years time.
1: So do you see that as already being priced into the stock at $228? It's still down almost 70% year to date.
5: Year to date, yeah. It's up from its lows quite a bit. We just felt that um, it's 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 past the worst. Um, now, who knows what the next sub number might be when they report Q3. That's always the, the primary driver of the stock. But the fundamental view that we're taking here is that ad-supported streaming is growing over ad-free, more expensive streaming because consumers can't afford to pay for more of those services. Also, the CPMs, the dollars you know per, per impression that the companies receive on the ads that they place, can be actually very high. And so the ad-supported streaming services can be actually more lucrative than the ad-free services. Netflix has woken up to this. They may be launching the service already on November 1st is what we're reading most recently. Um, And that we think can actually lead to some nice um, incremental revenue growth, again, over over the next few years. Now, it's still a very crowded marketplace, right? And we didn't go to an outperform, we went to a neutral. It's also a difficult ad market we're going into. If we have an ad slowdown, which appears to be underway as the economy slows, It's not exactly the best market to be entering into, but Netflix has great um, uh, brand recognition, great user base, good data to target ads to those consumers. And it's a it's a structural shift from linear traditional TV into more connected uh, um, uh, over the top streaming TV advertising.
1: What I liked about your note also, Tim, is that you mentioned a few other stock winners that could be part of the whole ecosystem here with the Netflix ad tier pricing. The Trade Desk, I think was mentioned, and Roku. Mm-hmm. Do you like those names? I don't, I don't know if you cover those stocks, but what, what's the benefit for some of those companies?
5: I do cover them and I I do uh, have buy ratings of both of those two stocks as well. Um, You know, there's a lot of hubbub over the news that uh, Microsoft is going to be the exclusive tech partner to Netflix when it rolled out its ad tier. I'm not fully on board with the view that Microsoft will be exclusive. I think there are opportunities for companies like the Trade Desk to be buying those ads on Netflix. Um, And I think there's an opportunity for Roku as well to be trying to monetize some of the revenue that Netflix will be generating on the app, on the Roku platform, when it launches its its um, its streaming service. So I think there are opportunities for their ad tech place. I think this is a good opportunity for the connected TV ad ecosystem as a whole. Again, Netflix is the single largest um, uh, subscription service in all of streaming TV, and they are opening their inventory now to advertising for the first time.
1: Yeah, I think also interesting point you make about Netflix shows may be available on the Roku channel. Uh, something to watch. Tim, thank you. Thank you. Tim Nolan, look at the airline stocks. They're flying high today after United Airlines raised both its third quarter revenue guidance and adjusted operating margin forecast thanks to strong travel demand. Bill LeBeau joins us. Phil, is this still leisure travel or is corporate travel making a comeback?
0: Well, it's primarily leisure that is carrying uh, most of the freight right now for the airlines. But we are seeing an increase in corporate bookings. Look, it's not at pre-pandemic levels yet. But it is gradually increasing. The question is, how much more will it increase over the next couple of months? Because remember, September and October are primarily where you see the corporate bookings do most of the business for the airlines. And then you've got capacity being trimmed, which also helps the airlines. Overall, when you look at what was heard from a number of airline executives today at the Cowan Conference, very upbeat about the state of the industry right now, what they're expecting heading into the holidays, Sarah.
1: Well, right now is the key phrase that you just mentioned. What are they expecting into the holidays? And then beyond that, where the market is expecting a slowdown?
0: Well, there's going to be a slowdown in the beginning of next year. That's expected in terms of travel. That always happens uh, right after the uh, Christmas, New Year's uh, holiday rush. We're going to see strong demand for the holiday traffic season. You're going to see airfares rising from here, maybe not as high as they were at the peak this summer, but they are going to go up. I think it's going to be a strong fourth quarter for the airlines, and I think that's what they're expecting at this point.
1: Phil LeBeau. Phil, thank you. If you look at a group, Mike, like the airlines, it's still about 30 percent off the recent highs. Hasn't exactly been trading well because of the The fundamental concern about the consumer and and slowdowns, what we might see in Europe and the UK as a result of the energy crisis. Yes. What what expectations are baked in here, especially after a surprise announcement like we got from United?
4: Pretty low expectations. I mean, the airline index is where it was exactly two years ago. So you've essentially had the huge rush of enthusiasm around the reopening and and kind of the the rebirth of global travel and then it's unwound entirely. I don't think the ceiling is particularly high for the stocks just because of what happened to their balance sheets over the course of uh, you know of the pandemic that issued so much equity and debt but things can be better than feared and when you do a fuel costs down as much as they are it seems like it should uh, create a little bit of Uh, a little breathing room in terms of their numbers if things are not terrible. But the global piece of it is tremendous. I mean, I've seen even just these charts of uh, collapsing, you know, internal flight uh, schedules within China. Essentially, very difficult to get going unless you have the rest of the world coming along.
1: You just heard the two-minute mark. Mike, what do you see in the market internals?
4: Yeah, it's been a pretty comprehensive upside day. If you look at the you know, up versus down volume, not overwhelming, not one of those 90% up days that gets everybody excited to make you feel like there's a decisive reversal higher for the overall market. But more than 80% to the upside is pretty good. You see there in the New York Stock Exchange data. Now, look at energy relative to retail. Look at it on a quarter-to-day basis. Kind of tells you the story of a turnabout here. Uh, this is actually year-to-date. But retail relative to energy is actually flipped. Uh, So far since June 30th, where energy is actually underperforming. So you're basically seeing a real give back there. uh, And it's a tax break, as you know, to the rest of the consumer economy. Volatility index has shown uh, a little bit of an easing back. Two points lower, actually bordering on one of these uh, short-term buy signals, which would be three points below its recent high above 27. You see, it's basically been from 19 to 35. So we're in the bottom third of that one-year range, Sarah.
1: Looking at oil prices, crude oil just tipping below $82 a barrel, yeah. $81.88. So it continues to move south pretty sharply here. We're talking about an almost 6% move as we speak. And as Carl mentioned earlier in the day, it's only up about 8% year-to-date. Could go flat on the year. Pretty remarkable sell-off that we've seen. That's why energy stocks are underperforming here into the close. The only sector that is weaker on the day. Everything else is higher. The best performing sector is consumer discretionary now. 3% gain there thanks to a rally and some of the beaten up names in retail. Raw stores, Norwegian Cruise Lines, VF, PVH, TJ Maxx. Utilities are strong, materials are strong. The Nasdaq Composite going out with a gain of more than 2.1%. Lower treasury yields a part of the story. Also just breaking a seven-day losing streak. That's going to do it for Closing bells. See you tomorrow into overtime with Scott Wapner. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation.